Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Today we're going to take a look at the mandatory minimum sentencing structure so prevalent in these United States. The sentencing project out of Washington, D.C. has just released a major new study disproving the popular belief that there exists a growing methamphetamine epidemic within the United States. They reveal that methamphetamine is actually one of the rarest illegal drugs used with its use declining among youth, stabilizing among adults, and demonstrating no increase in first-time users. Meantime, the politicians pander on both state and federal for longer prison sentences, for more mandatory minimums, for methamphetamine users. So I thought I would ask the man who helped craft many of the mandatory minimums laws in these United States just what the hell's going on. So I called on Mr. Eric Sterling, head of Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. It happens, you know, we're, we're conducting this interview on June 12, 19, uh, 2006. Yes. On June 19, 1986, Len Bias died, almost exactly 20 years ago. Your viewers may not remember that Len Bias was a brilliant basketball star of the skills and generation of Michael Jordan. That instead of Michael Jordan in, in recent memory being the premier basketball star, it could have easily been, you know, Bias and Jordan, Jordan and Bias. The champion team. In the, uh, the National Intercollegiate Champion Basketball Team in men's in 1986 was the University of Maryland. They won the NIT championship. The champion NBA team that had won a number of national titles as the best professional basketball team in the country were the Boston Celtics. Right, right. And in June 1986, Len Bias, the star from Maryland, flies to Boston and signs a contract with the champion NBA team. And Boston is exhilarated. Sure. Our dynasty, our basketball dynasty with Larry Bird is going to continue forward. I remember the whole nation was excited uh, for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. I mean, this, you know, this, was, this, was, this was big news because this was really a tremendous team. Bias was a tremendous athlete. He came signing ceremony, flies back to Washington. He's still living in the dormitory at the University of Maryland. And he is celebrating this professional contract with his friends. He's drinking, he's snorting cocaine, and the cocaine caused an overdose, and he died. He died in the door, you know. Major news, major, major news. Major, major news. Now, from the perspective of members of Congress, members of Congress are sports fans because they like to be able to talk to the public about sports. They want to sort of show that they're the common man, the common touch. They know that basketball, their basketball hoops above, you know, every garage and driveway and playground. Every, you, know, you only need five people on a team, so even the smallest schools have basketball teams. And it's a competitive kind of mix-it-up sport. Members of Congress are very competitive. 
They even have a basketball court in the House gymnasium. Okay. So we're talking about... So the other thing then to recognize, members of Congress then pay attention to sports, they pay attention to the news. When they are in Washington, every night, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, they turn on the local evening news to see the wrap-up of the day's news, see which members of Congress got on television, what are the big issues, and what's happening in sports, because they want to be able to, to talk about it. And if you're in Washington, D.C., in the years leading up to 1986, you've seen the fabulously gifted Len Bias pounding down, scoring, because it's the home team. The University of Maryland is, you know, 20 miles from the Capitol Dome. So night after night, you've seen the basketball highlights. You know who this young man is. You've seen him interviewed a dozen times. You, you've seen his face from every angle. And as a professional, someone you, you're very conscious of this. So when, he, when this man dies, it's, it is a blow to every member of Congress who's paid attention to this. Members then go back to their district soon after June 19th for the July 4th recess. And on July 4th, the members of Congress, they're all talking to their constituents. And it's an even number year. They're aware that there's an election, July, August, September, October. Just around in, the bend. In only a few months. You know, the races are heating up. They're tightening. They know that July 4th I can campaign. I can campaign during August, and I can campaign after Congress leaves town, you know, in October after the budget has been uh, passed out of the houses. So there is this intense campaign thinking, and constituents are talking about cocaine, and they're talking about crack cocaine, which has just become a major problem in New York City with cars being broken in small doses of crack, and it's a problem in Houston, it's a problem in, in L.A. and Miami, and members of Congress have even you know, begun to introduce legislation for mandatory minimums. Uh, that we're not members of the committee, you know, not going anywhere. The Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill is from Boston, from Cambridge, right. and he comes, goes home for the district work period, he comes back at the beginning of July. And he's talking with other members, of, and he realizes that this death s symbolizes an opportunity for the Democrats to get out front on the drug issue, an issue that the Republicans had controlled very much to good effect in the 1984 election. In 1986, Democrats are looking and realizing if we play the issues right, we might be able to take the Senate back from the Republicans who took it in 1980 on the coattails of, Rich, of Ronald Reagan. Right. So it's with this very high-stakes political agenda and strategy involved that we can show democratic momentum if we, if we manipulate this issue. And so the, the democratic legislative strategy that Tip O'Neill advances is every committee in the House, which is controlled by a Democratic chairman, is going to contribute to an anti-drug bill so that every member of Congress, can who's it, every majority member, every Democratic member can come back, go back to the district and say, ought my bill to do this, my amendment to do this, to fight the drug scourge, the drug plague, to protect our youth, yes. you know, is just moving through the Congress right now. And so the Speaker says to the committees, 
I want every committee to bring forward before the August recess in the next four weeks a number of bills and provisions. I want everything that you can possibly think of to fight drugs pulled up. So now the Judiciary Committee, we've been working on creating designer drugs, a very complicated question of defining. We're working on the money laundering legislation. Um, you know, we're working on uh, giving DEA other powers and overseeing DEA. We'd, we'd been, we had hearings on the problem of, of the, the issue of drug paraphernalia and decided we weren't ready right now to move a bill out of subcommittee. Um, and every other, and suddenly I'm now going to the meetings in the Speaker's Conference Room with the Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over the Treasury Department, Interior and Insular Affairs, which has jurisdiction over the National Parks, the House Agriculture Committee, which has jurisdiction over the National Forests, and uh, the, the, the uh, Merchant Marine and Fisheries Committee, which has jurisdiction over the Coast Guard. You know, and the Education and Labor Committee, we're going to have drug-free schools and communities. And of course, the Foreign Relations Committee that's going to sort of talk about certifying foreign countries to be our allies in fighting drug trade. Which you continues know, to this day, right? Which is one of the, it's a great problem in our foreign relations with other nations. But it's coming out, you know, the only, mandatory minimums were not the only ill-considered, hastily designed, you know, politically motivated thing that came out of this. And so, post office and civil service. I mean, every committee has got some piece of this. And, you know, the TV lights are all over the Capitol. The cameras are going as members of Congress are holding press conferences to announce their new provision to crack down on some part of this problem. Right. So, July ends, August begins. We've got two weeks now. The last week of August. The, the, the committees are finishing up before members fly back to their districts to campaign. And so on the Tuesday, we're, 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 we're about finished. We're going to finish on, on Thursday. The Republicans force a vote to say, we want, because they picked up a couple of, of Republicans, uh, picked up a couple of Democrats on our subcommittee, to say, we want a bill with mandatory minimum sentences. We've had, we don't have a bill yet. We haven't had any hearings. We, haven't, we don't have time to get the opinion of the Justice Department, the federal judges. We're not going to ask the Bureau of Prisons what this is going to do. We're not going to ask uh, people who've studied the Rockefeller drug laws in New York to see what their experience was with the effectiveness or the justness of mandatory minimums. We're going to, Eric, bring us back a draft of a bill. Oh, God. Uh, you know. Bring it back tomorrow morning. We start, you know, this oh process comes up. So it's a rolling process where the markup begins before there's actually a bill that's been printed. So the proposal I first came back was, okay, we abolished mandatory minimums in 1970 in the Controlled Substances Act. So if you want mandatory minimums, this should be a very extraordinary thing. You know, the maximum penalty generally for drug offense, the maximum is 15 years as we're going into this thing. And we're now considering mandatory minimums. Our House bills would have been a mandatory of five years up to 20 years, a mandatory of 10 years up to 40 years. Those would have been the ranges for high-level traffickers defined as by DEA as an organization that delivers hundreds of thousands of doses of drugs per month. Okay. High-level trafficker. Okay. Congressman... Mazzoli from Louisville, Kentucky, 
looks at the, at the proposal, Mr. Chairman, if we define high-level trafficker in these terms that DEA is using, we're never going to use this law in Louisville because Louisville is not a center of the drug trade. We need lower quantities so that even though Louisville has never been a center of America's drug traffic or the global drug traffic, and it's not the place where the federal focus ought to be made, we begin to have a, for the, the purpose of having the congressman's legislation talked about in news stories, press conferences by the United States Attorney, we dilute, we diluted the, the, the standards, moving from hundreds of thousands of doses House bill ends up being, well, we're concerned about crack cocaine epidemic. 20 grams of crack would get you a mandatory minimum, you know, at five years up to 20 years. The bill gets reported out, no hearings, bam, 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 mandatory minimums. Uh, and so over August, while the members of Congress are all campaigning about all this wonderful, you know, crackdown legislation they've passed, Staff is in the process of sort of taking the stuff from 20 different House committees and putting it together into one gigantic bill. One gigantic bill. And this gigantic bill then is like unveiled after the Labor Day recess. Members of Congress come back and we immediately go into debate in the House of Representatives. Nobody's seen the whole package except a handful of staffers like me. None of the members of Congress know what's really in this bill. Right. You know, they all know that their little favorite provision is in there, something they can, that they've issued press releases about, and that's going to go forward. So it passes the House. It goes to the Senate. And in the House, already the, the, the politics, politics had begun to backfire. Conservatives said, you know what? We should have the death penalty in this bill. <laughs> we should have the death penalty for big drug trafficking. <sighs> bill passes... Member, member saying, you know, we ought to, we ought to limit the, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. There's a rule in the Constitution, there's a rule that the judges have created to make the Fourth Amendment rule against vile, unlawful searches and seizures, unconstitutional searches and seizures. Judges have said, when police act unconstitutionally, they don't get to benefit from the evidence that they've seized. It's called the fruit of the poisonous tree. Exactly, yes. And so the fruit of this poisonous tree is excluded from the trial. That we, we don't allow in the trial between the accused and the government, the government to introduce evidence that's been obtained in violation of the constitutional principles. It's called the exclusionary rule. All right. So the Republicans propose, let's eliminate that rule. Let's say evidence that's been obtained unconstitutionally will be admitted if the police officer testifies that the unconstitutional behavior he engaged in was unintentional, or that he didn't know that it violated the Constitution, he thought he was obeying the Constitution. He was just, uh, though he may have screwed up, he was trying his best. Though he screwed up, he was trying his best. That's so that this good faith <laughs> exception would, of course, totally eliminate the meaning of the protection. In other words, you'd say, we acted unconstitutionally, but it doesn't matter. We still use this evidence obtained unconstitutionally against you. Because we were pure at heart. Because we, we, we testified under oath that we were pure at heart. Well, 
This was a tremendous embarrassment, and these kinds of things got into the bill, as I recall. And the bill goes to the Senate, and it's got the death penalty in it. It's got these mandatory minimums. It's got these various things. The Senate Judiciary Committee is chaired by Strom Thurmond from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The Republican, and Strom Thurmond is the president pro tem of the Senate. He's the leader of, of, the, of you know, the most senior Republican. And um, the Republicans, in the sense, say, I mean, this came from the liberals from New Jersey, Peter Rodino, <laughs> our arch enemy, who defeated, you know, who you know, helped engineer the resignation of Richard Nixon. We can do better. We can be tougher than them. We can do better <laughs> than they. So, 20 grams of crack becomes 5 grams of crack. Right. Now, 5 grams is like a sweet and low packet. Sure. 1 gram is a sweet and low packet. You know, 5 grams. And, and it takes less than a gram of cocaine to make five grams of crack. But go ahead. So, if you started by saying the purpose of this bill is to focus on the highest level drug traffickers who bring tons of cocaine, who bring cargo containers of cocaine in the country, we're talking about much, much smaller people. But we have, remember, we're moving very fast. We haven't, we're not yet clear on even what this does. Ask a member of Congress the difference between five grams, five milligrams, and five kilograms. And they'll say, I'm sorry, you know, with all due respect, I know how much a pound is and an ounce is, but I don't quite, I, I, I get confused <laughs> between the milligrams and the kilograms. All right. So, it's not, a, it's not a body that's fluent in metric. Right. So, the Republicans in the Senate, without having hearings, are going to make this tougher. And what, has go- what had been five years to 20 years now becomes five years to 40 years. And what had been 10 years to 40 years now becomes 10 years to life. 10 years to life gets triggered by as little as 50 grams of crack cocaine. Now, when you go to a vending machine and you put 75 cents into the machine to get a bag of M&Ms out, that bag of M&Ms might have 49 or 50 grams of M&M. We're talking about candy bar quantity. Sure. Think of the cocaine that floods into this country. Think about the cocaine problem. Think about the relative role between the federal government and the state and local governments. The federal government does 25,000 drug cases a year across the country. The states impose each year 300,000 drug felony convictions the 50 states. So, the states have in prison 500,000 drug prisoners. The federal government has in prison 100,000 drug prisoners. Most of our punishment capacity, most of it is at the state level. What's the federal role compared to the role of the state narcotics bureau, the state police, the local police, the local narcotics bureau? Should the federal government be investigating street-level drug traffickers. One-third of all the federal cocaine cases average 50 grams, average a candy bar's weight. Pick up a candy bar and flip it and hold it and say to yourself, my God, this represents a third of all the federal cocaine cases. This is a junk food justice department, which is making the federal, go- the federal prison system at least obese with low-level drug cases. So the U.S. Sentencing Commission 
for, at the request of Congress, studies what the Justice Department is bringing. And they find that your street-level crack dealer, whose average is 52 grams of crack, gets 104 months in federal prison. The average so-called high-level dealer is involved in an average of 16,000 grams, 30 pounds. Think of two briefcases of cocaine you could put in the back of your car. Now, this is not international cargo container. Well, this is not a truck full. This is not a boat full. This is not an airplane full. A lo- you know, this is two lunch pails full right. of cocaine. Yeah. That quantity gets 101 months for that level of culpability compared to 104 months for 50 grams of crack. They have the money for the lawyers. They have the money for the lawyers, and the sentencing system is rigged. The federal government is overwhelmingly focused on the low-level, easy-to-try cases. The Sentencing Commission found that of the federal cocaine cases, 70% of the cases were defined as street-level cases, neighborhood cases, local cases. And only 15% were national and international high-level traffickers. So the over 85, you know, overwhelmingly what the Justice Department is doing is irrelevant to the federal role. They're doing the state and local stuff. So, you can, if you are, if you are a chief of police, if you are a concerned citizen who thinks that the war on drugs should be fought, who thinks that drug prohibition is the right way to go, you should be calling for the resignation of the Attorney General and the head of DEA for their incompetence. Because they are a wall in doing their job, you know. To those who say, "Have we fought an effective war on drugs?" We've not fought an effective war on drugs, at least in terms of what the strategy supposedly is, because it's politically corrupted, so that every, you know, mayor can point to his DEA-funded local task force, and every U.S. attorney can talk about the dangerous local ring that they broke up, so that. All over the country, places that have nothing to do with it ought to be the federal responsibility, where it's a state and local responsibility to fight the drug trade, they let the feds come in and get some kind of glory. What Congress did in 1986, 5 grams, 50 grams, 500 grams, 5,000 grams, these are at the very bottom of the global drug trade. And we've given these big signposts to the Justice Department. Look here. So they're not doing their job. I was lucky enough to do this interview live with Eric up in Clark, New Jersey, while we were attending the Marijuana Policy Project's great training seminar. And you can learn more about Eric's work by visiting his website, which is cjpf.org. The Marijuana Policy Project site is mpp.org. Educate yourself. Please help us to change these laws. Methamphetamine crisis, don't believe the hype. A D.C.-based prison advocacy group, The Sentencing Project, released a report on methamphetamine this week. The report, titled The Next Big Thing, debunks much of the hype and hysteria surrounding this drug. Among their findings, The Sentencing Project concluded that, first, methamphetamine is among the least commonly used drugs in the U.S. In fact, there are at least four times as many users of cocaine and at least 30 times as many users of marijuana. Second, rates of methamphetamine use have remained stable since 1999. The government's own estimates show any increase in use occurred in the early and mid-1990s. 
Third, rates of methamphetamine use by high school students have declined since 1999. This is very important because lower rates of use by young people today can mean even lower rates of use later on in their adult years. Fourth, methamphetamine use remains a rare occurrence in most of the U.S., but exhibits higher rates of use in selected areas. Fifth, drug treatment has been demonstrated to be effective in combating methamphetamine addiction. And finally, misleading media reports of a methamphetamine epidemic have hindered development of a rational policy response to this problem. Now, while none of this is a surprise to loyal listeners, policymakers still haven't gotten the message. Hopefully, this new sentencing project report will help spread the truth. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Our next report comes from Mr. Terry Nelson, a man with 32 years' experience serving our nation as a customs border and air interdiction officer, a man who retired with a G-14 rating, the equivalent of a bird colonel. Please listen up. According to the most recent FBI 2005 data, uh, preliminary crime reports, homicide is up 4.8%, robbery up 4.5%, and assaults up one9 And many of these incidents are directly related to illicit drugs. Crime increases and more people are incarcerated, many of them parents. With parents in jail, kids must grow up without a solid parental base, their family life administered by the state. Even a bad dad is better than no dad at all. And I'm not excusing abusive parents, but just because they use a prohibited substance doesn't make them a bad parent. Of the 2.2 million people incarcerated in the United States, approximately 1.6 million of them are for drug arrests. We must not forget that about 12% of today's prison inmates lived in a foster home or institution, and 46% had a family member who had been incarcerated. You do the math, but 46% of 1.6 million people continuing on into the future, and the statistics are very dismal. Sometimes we make future criminals by sustaining ineffective drug policies. Incarceration because of use or possession of prohibited substance is nonproductive. For the new and burgeoning prison industries, it's essential to keep the flow of bodies, but for our communities and schools, it creates innocent victims and more social problems. If an alternative is sought, the damage would be much less. Nonviolent drug offenses have no victims except the user until the police acting on behalf of the government make it so. In sharp contrast, Violent criminals and child predators are threatened with really long prison sentences, but the time served is usually much less. Our legal system should not be a let's-make-a-deal type game show. We're dealing with human lives and the safety of our citizens. Violent offenders and sex offenders should serve their time and be afforded a chance at rehabilitation. But under the current overcrowding, there are neither funds, space, nor resources to make a serious attempt at rehabilitation. I want police to enforce crimes that have victims or crimes against persons or property. It is time to stop the enforcement of moral laws that force predetermined governmental beliefs on the population and, for that matter, the world. As a spokesperson for LEAP, we believe that all drugs should be legalized, controlled, dispensed, and taxed like any other commodity. This will save thousands of lives each year and reduce street violence significantly. It is arrogant to impose one's moral beliefs on another country or its citizens and could be compared to certain religious fanatics that want to impose their moral beliefs on those that do not believe as they do. Isn't that why we're fighting the war on terror? Our current drug policy is wrong and seeks to impose a a certain segment's moral values on other people 
and nations. This failed policy should be ceased and jail space reserved for those that commit crimes against property or people. Google the name Harry Anslinger, father of the drug war, and learn how this madness started, and then see if you believe the war on drugs is a just war. Alternatives exist. Educate and inform yourselves. Failure is not an option. It's time for a change. It's broke. Let's fix it. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. There's just not enough time to report all the drug war news that I feel I should. I apologize. So, once again, I simply remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please, be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>